0: Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ.
1: Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless he is God with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter into a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Uh, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born with the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him,
0: If you were in Everton, England, walking through the cemetery, you could stop at a tombstone of Reverend John Berridge, vicar of Everton, and here's the epithet you would read. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without new birth. I was born in sin, February 1716. Remain ignorant of my fallen state till 1730. live proudly on faith and works for salvation till 1754. Admitted to Everton Vicarage, 1755. Fled to Jesus alone for refuge, 1756. Fell asleep in Christ, 22nd January, 1793. That's a powerful epithet. We could actually stop right here, open up the altar, and have prayer. But since we have about 40 minutes, I think I'll preach. It's interesting this idea of the new birth. <clears throat> Born again was a very familiar term in the last century for anybody that attended a Billy Graham uh, crusade or Basically, attended an evangelical church. It became a part of evangelical pop culture, and influential voices, even like the president Jimmy Carter, who talked about being a born-again Christian. Chuck Colson, the the uh, a part of the Nixon White House after his conviction, wrote a book, Born Again. Johnny Erickson, Tata, you'll hear her use the language. Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans, Beth Moore. It's all a part of their theological language, but that's actually not true anymore. Today, it's not a term that you hear in church. Some of you might occasionally hear the term, but not often. It's not a term that secular culture even really understands, and a lot of churchgoers don't understand. As a matter of fact, Tim Mackey, the Bible Project, did a little research in the Oregonian. Very large newspaper in his town. And this was what he found when he searched the term born again in all the archives of this large secular newspaper. He found that the stereotypes in today's culture, when we talk about being born again, kind of fall into three areas. He said, first of all, <clears throat> the term was used about famous people who are involved in sex, drugs, and heavy rock music. Suddenly their life came crashing down. They sort of did an about face, found Jesus, and started singing Christian music. And he said, typically the term born again was connected to them, people who had some emotional experience. He said, secondly, it was connected with super vocal politicians that embraced strict moral, social values, or just moral structure. He said it was attached to them. He said it was also attached to people who suddenly stopped sleeping around, gave up the party life, got religion. He said they were called born again people. But my question to you is what does it mean to be born again? Do you know? Have you been born again? Well, I think we can find that answer only in the words of the one who actually used that term for the first time in history. And Jesus used that term in his conversation with Nicodemus. And out of that conversation, four questions arise. Who is it for? Who needs to be born again? What does it do? How does it come? How do I know I have been born again? Let's ask the first question, who in the world is it for? Well, I just mentioned to you that on the street chatter about born again people, they fall into three stereotypical categories. You know, the broken type. You've heard them. Sometimes a pastor will bring someone into the church. He's been a drug addict. He's been dysfunctional. He grew up in a terrible home. And he's had all kinds of problems, moral issues, and all kinds of of, of terrible things have happened to him. And he, he stands in the pulpit and he talks about the great change in his life. That's what secular world says. Oh, that guy is the guy that needed to be born again. He needed it. And then the political world, the knee jerk fundamentalists, the conservative, the political hacks that embrace real strict rules from Judeo-Christian faith, they're immediately lumped into that pile. Oh, those are the people who've been born again, or the party girl that stopped sleeping around. But what is interesting, and what's amazing as you read this passage, the very first person Jesus called to be born again fit none of the stereotypes. Nicodemus was a well-adjusted, non-emotional, upper-echelon, academic elite who had it together morally. He was a religious studies professor, a money-loving theologian. In the Supreme Court of Israel, he was at the top of his game in every area of life. He was so secure enough that he could approach Jesus wisely under the cover of darkness to Talk about, you know, we know you came from God and we know we're from God and we believe in you. Maybe we could get together and work something out. Maybe we could help you and you could help us. His life was working just fine. He didn't have any sad stories to make headlines in the Jerusalem news. He was doing well. But it's interesting. Jesus immediately reset that conversation. It's an abrupt halt to what Nicodemus was saying. Suddenly, Jesus just looks to him and says, you know what, son? You need to be born again. You need a new life. What's the point? The point Jesus was making, being religious, joining the church, being baptized, doesn't cut it. Some people rest on those things. They rest on their moral life. They rest on their religious life. Well, I'm a missionary's kid. I'm a pastor's kid. I was born into a Christian home. I was baptized early on in life. And somehow you assume because all of those things came together in your life, you're born again. You have spiritual life from above. But Jesus looks at you and says, well, no. You need a spiritual birth in your life. Many today, many evangelists, many preachers would look at Nicodemus and say, wow, you're a good man, very religious. You know what? Just say this little prayer. And and that'll take care of everything you need. But in Jesus' mind, no matter how high up he was in the religious stratosphere of his day, he was a zero when it came to spiritual birth in the eyes of God. That had to be tough on Nicodemus. That had to be unbelievably shocking. You know, there were about 6,000 Pharisees at the time Jesus said this, and there's only one recorded conversion of a Pharisee in the New Testament, and that's Nicodemus. The new birth is for everyone. Not a single one of you here can escape the way you come into the kingdom of God is through being born from above. None of you would remember this, Dr. McCain might. 1970, Asbury College, which is now Asbury University, had an amazing, remarkable move of God. Dr. Kenlaw said it like this, he was the president at the time. He said, God stepped in to Hughes auditorium and stayed for 13 days. There was never a moment, night or day, when someone wasn't in that auditorium praying. Confessions were being made. Kids were lining up behind the chapel pulpit, coming clean, making confessions, talking about what they'd been, the stuff they had been doing. There was a young lady in that group who had grown up in a Salvation Army home. And from just a little girl, she had played a violin on the street. She had served in the soup lines. She had given her testimony about being a Christian to the down and outers. Been there, done that, had the t-shirt. And now she's 18 years old and she's in the middle of that revival at Asbury College. And God saves her for the first time in her life. She experiences the new birth. She gets on the phone. Back in those days, it was the pay phone in the hallway. And she got in the line and she called her daddy, who was a captain in the Salvation Army. She said, Dad, I got some great news. He said, what is it? She said, Dad, I was born again tonight. The line went silent. Her dad said, what in the world are they doing to you down there? Well, you've been a Christian all your life. And he went through that resume of playing on the streets and serving in the soup line and giving her testimony. He said, what did they do? He said, oh, Dad, 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 listen. I did that because that was just my family culture. That's what we did. That was our identity. It was just a part of being your family. I did that because I loved you and Mom, and I loved what you were doing. But she said, Dad, something's happened to me internally. She said, Dad, I've been born again. What's also interesting, during that same revival, the New Testament professor at Asbury was converted. He got saved, a real, live Nicodemus. What does the new birth do? What does it do? Well, just as your first birth gave you physical life, the new birth gives you spiritual life. An implantation of new life spiritual life by the Holy Spirit when he turned to Nicodemus and said to him you've got to be born of water and of the spirit or you won't even see the kingdom of God you will not enter the kingdom of God Jesus was shocked when Nicodemus didn't seem to know that he said you're a teacher in Israel you don't know this why everybody that was a teacher, a professor of, of, of the Torah, a professor of the prophet should have known Ezekiel chapter 36. The promise that I will sprinkle clean water on you and purge you and wash you from all your uncleanness. That was an outward thing. And then I'm going to put my spirit in your heart I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart of, take the stony heart out, put a heart of flesh in, and I'm going to put my spirit within your heart. I'm going to write my laws on your heart. Jesus, water, spirit. Something is going to happen that's going to change you both inwardly and outwardly. And you don't even know that, Nicodemus? We talk about what does a new birth do? The language of the New Testament's amazing. Paul says, you are a new creation. Peter says it like this. He said, you've been born from above through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Born again, not from corruptible seed or perishable seed, but from imperishable seed. Titus talks about the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians said, you are dead in your sins. He said, you walked according to the course of this world. You were plugged into this present world. That's the drummer that you listened to. That's the beat that you followed. That's the way that you would go. This present world, you you followed the prince of the power of the air. In other words, you were a part of the devil's gang. That's where you were. He said, but because of God's gracious mercies, you're no longer alienated. You've been brought into the family of God. Some amazing things have happened to you. Paul puts it in a nutshell in Romans chapter 5 to those who've been justified by faith. He said, we have peace with God. (laughs) If I could put peace in a capsule and peddle it, I'd be a billionaire overnight. Some of you long for peace. You long for a sense of rest in your own heart, but can only be found through the new birth. There's peace with God. There's the power of grace that works in your heart. Paul said, you've been ushered into a whole new level of living. You have been brought into this level of grace wherein we stand. The power of grace is working in your life. Grace is more than just unmerited favor. Grace is also that gracious ability of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do and to be everything that God wants us to be. Paul exclaimed, Where sin abounded, grace did superabound in our lives. There's peace with God, there's the power of grace, and there's a promise of future glory in heaven. Those are things that happened in the new birth. Might even phrase it like this. We have new sensibilities. We have a totally new identity if we've been born again. We now see the kingdom. We now see its values. We now hear the voice of the Spirit. We can touch and taste and smell our emotions. Our mind is illumined. Our heart is moved. Our loves are reoriented. We have a new identity. I'm not the same old guy I was before I was born again. If you had met me at 17 years old, you wouldn't have liked me very much. I say I was a leftover from the hippie generation, pathetic. But something amazing and mysterious happened to me on March the 17th, 1974, on a Sunday night when I yielded my life to Christ. He washed me with water and gave me a new heart and a new spirit on the inside. My life was changed. St. Augustine said it like this. When St. Augustine, who was quite a, a wicked man and deep into the world of of, of immorality and sex. He had a mistress, I guess his favorite mistress was Claudia. And after Augustine's conversion, he went back into the little village where he lived and he was walking down the street. And it just so happened that coming down the other side of the street was Claudia. And Augustine paid her no attention. He just kept walking. She saw him. She cried across the street. She said, Augustine, Augustine, it's I, Claudia. He turned and looked at her and cried out, but it's no longer I, Augustine. And he turned and kept walking. We have a new identity in Christ. We aren't that same old person that we were before. We found something different and new. But how does it come? How does it happen? Well, from God's side, Jesus says it's kind of like the wind, it's mysterious. You see it, you feel it, but you don't see it. You don't really know where it's going, where it came from. There is something mystical that you and I can't fully explain because it is of God, it is of the Holy Spirit. It is a work He does in us, it's not something we do ourselves. We don't just suddenly suddenly decide we're going to be born again. Leopard can't change its spots. You just can't turn over a new leaf and suddenly be a spiritual person. No, there's something mystical and spiritual that has to happen inside of you. That's from God's part. But what about our side of that equation? Well, from our side of that equation, Jesus used an amazing story to talk about that. He told the story from Numbers 21, that unique story where Israel was once again grumbling and complaining against God, and he sent fiery serpents among them. And they were dying. The poison had infected their system and they were dying. And, and, and God, and Moses pled with God, What do we do? And God said, Take one of those, make a brazen serpent, put it on a pole, and have the people just look up at it. And the poison that had infected their system was taken and placed on that pole that looked like a cross. And when they looked up at the one who had taken that poison into his own system, they were instantly healed. What Jesus is saying simply here is that our part of that is to look in faith. We cannot save ourselves. Our good works will not save us. Our religious morality will not save us. You can be baptized till every fish in the river knows your name and social security number and that won't save you. You can take every Bible class there is at Columbia. You can go to every student prayer meeting. You can go, every mission trip you wanna go. None of that will save you. You only have to look to him in faith for that salvation. Look and live was the language of the Old Testament. Look and live is what Jesus said. Faith is simply believing what he says, trusting in what he promises and obeying what he commands. Faith is our part. Most of you have at least have heard the name of Charles Spurgeon prince of preachers, the great preacher, the great British preacher. Have you heard the story of his conversion? 15 year old Charles Spurgeon was going faithfully going to go to church one Sunday morning and a blizzard hit in the area where he lived. The blizzard was so bad that he couldn't get to the church where he normally would go. And he had to stop at a little small primitive Methodist church Again, the blizzard was so bad that the pastor wasn't there. Very few people were there. Just a handful of people showed up. And he said, I made my way into that little church and I sat back under the balcony area and a handful of people were there. And he said, this sort of a, an ignorant layman tried to help in the service. And so he got up and he read from Isaiah 45, 22. He said, look unto me and be saved all ye ends of the earth. And then he started exhorting. He said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It just says, look. Now that doesn't take a lot of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But that's what the text says. Look. But it also says, look unto me. Hi, said he. Many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort there. Look unto me, it says. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on a cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father. Oh, look to me, look to me." And then the layman looked back at young Charles Spurgeon, sitting there, listening, absorbing those words. And here's what he said. He said, "'Young man, you look miserable. And you're always going to be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text this morning. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. And then he said, he shouted like only a primitive Methodist could shout. And he said, young man, look to Christ. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. Charles Spurgeon said for the first time by faith, I look to Jesus. And in that moment was converted. Billy Graham tells an amazing story of back in the 50s when he was invited to speak at Cambridge University. Billy Graham was unbelievably intimidated by going to a place like Cambridge and speaking. And of course, the Cambridge faculty began to make a lot of remarks about this this American hick who probably preached on sawdust coming over. What in the world is he going to say to us? Billy Graham said, I had, I had heard so much of that that he said, I became intimidated. And he said, so I, I really brushed up on my, my, my manuscripts. And he said, I, I pulled in a lot of name of big philosophers. And I tried to quote a lot of important people. And he said, the first four nights, it was miserable, miserable. And those who were there <laughs> said, it was indeed miserable. He didn't do very well, but he said on the last night, he said, I got along with God that day. And he said, God, this isn't working. I'm trying to be something I'm not, trying to impress people. And Billy Graham worked out a new message on the blood of Jesus Christ. And he said, he started at Genesis and went through the whole Bible, every scripture he could come up with. And he said, I just preached to them the word of God and the the scripture. And that night, 450 Cambridge students came forward and were powerfully converted. 25 years later, a man who was at that, an American who was there at that Cambridge event, who witnessed it, was in London and he met an Anglican priest. They struck up a conversation and the man said, tell me, tell me, how did you, how did you become a clergy in the church of England? And he said, oh, he said, I, I was in Cambridge. And he said, Billy Graham came. And he said on that Friday night, when he spoke about the blood of Jesus Christ, he said, God spoke to my heart and I placed my faith in Christ. And that was the end result. How do you become born again? How does it come? It comes by faith. Real, genuine trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ to transform your life. Finally, how do I know? How do I know that I've been born again? Well, if you put all the theologians in a sack and shook them and they fell out, here's what would fall out. They pretty much agree on the fact that the new birth is witnessed and evidenced to by a changed life. That's a consensus. That's what they would say. We are indeed saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. We're saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. What does that mean? Well, that means there are some evidences. First John, the entire epistle is built around the very fact John said, I'm writing these things to you that you might know that you have eternal life. And if you take the book and break it apart, there's three basic evidences. The first is obedience. If you have truly been born again, there's something that's happened in your heart. That stony heart's been taken out. A heart of flesh has been placed inside. And God said, I've written my laws on your heart. A simple way to say that is when you and I have been born from above, we have a heart that wants to obey him. John said, hereby you know that you know me. If you keep my commandments, a heart of obedience. A sinner has a rebellious heart. He's always kicking against everything, bucking against everything, the system and everybody else. He has an incurved heart that wants to do its own thing, go its own way, be its own little God, call its own shots. A changed heart, a converted heart, a newborn from above heart is a heart that suddenly wants to obey. John said the second evidence is love. He said there's this new love for the brethren. Said it's not all about me, it's not all about loving myself, it's suddenly a a, a love that loves others, a self-giving love. But he says it's also this component Of belief. He said, Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God. That's just not an intellectual thing, it's also an intimate by faith awareness that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Three simple tests that's obedience, love, faith. John Wesley. That's a crude drawing of John Wesley at Aldersgate. John Wesley was born into an amazing home. He had a remarkable mother. He was taught Greek at four years old. He, his father was an amazing man, a clergyman of the Church of England. But John Wesley was not converted until he was 35 years old. At a place called Aldersgate, reading the preface to the book of Romans, John Wesley said this, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed and I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I'm talking to a wonderful, wonderful group of kids. You grew up on mission fields around the world, missionary homes, pastors' homes, layman homes, Christian homes. My new friend from Rwanda that I actually didn't know, I knew from Mount Carmel and KMBC. God has done some remarkable things in all of your lives. But being just good Christian kids is no guarantee you've been saved, you've experienced the new birth. I graduated from a Bible college, went into the ministry. I was a pastor that grew, pastored a growing church. God was using my wife and I in many, many ways. And we had two wonderful boys born to us. We raised those kids. They were in every revival service, every vacation Bible service, every camp meeting service, everything that was going on, they were there. We worked in missions for five years. They traveled the world with me. They witnessed a lot of amazing answers to prayer and wonderful miracles. When I went to the Bible college as a president, they were there. They played in a college orchestra. They did all kinds of things. Wonderful opportunities. Good guys, good boys, never never disrespectful, never unkind, always gracious. But I noticed my oldest son... uh, you know, son, is there, yeah, dad, yeah, I, I, sure, I love the Lord. Yeah, yeah, of course. I said, well, son, are, are, you, are you ever reading your Bible? Uh, uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm getting around, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. And I thought, well, maybe, he, maybe, maybe this Bible I've g- given him, I bought him one of those, uh, well, it doesn't matter. I, I, it, it, it was a very significant Bible. I said, well, maybe that's bad translation. So I got him another translation. Oh, thanks, dad, I appreciate that, man, that's going to help me. Yeah, it went right on top of the old one. I said, I'll tell you what he needs. He needs a devotional book to explain some of that stuff. So I got him a devotional book. Oh, thanks, Dad. That's great. I'm going to Went right on top of the other one. And all of a sudden, books just started piling up. And they were getting dusty. They weren't being used. And I thought, wow, what can I do? What can... Man, uh, you know, son, you really, little... well, should we do this together? And Oh, Dad, I'm going I'm... Oh, to get right on that. Well, he never did. Never talked about spiritual things never was a part of that conversation. And then one Sunday night, when that good kid was 19 years old, my wife and I were standing in the kitchen getting ready to go upstairs to go to bed, and I hear the door open and it's it's Josh. I can tell by the way he's walking across the foyer who it is and he turns the corner and walks into the kitchen. Big, 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 smile on his face. He looked over at me and he said, Dad, I got to tell you something. I said, what is it? He said, Dad, God, save me tonight. Well, that ought to make every parent just thrilled. I about fell in the floor? Uh, save, save. I didn't say a word. My mind was spinning. What, what do you mean? You've been a Christian for years. But I just listened. He said, Dad, God, change me tonight. And it was obvious. The next morning I was in the breakfast area for having breakfast when he came down. And Marky came down with his Bible. Came down with his Bible. The one I've been begging him to read for years, he came down with the Bible. He said, Dad, you ever read this scripture over here? And we got into a dialogue about that. Later on in the week, on like a Thursday, he came down and he said, Dad, I stayed up late. I've been reading C.S. Lewis, The Four Loves. You ever read that book? He said, did you know there are four loves? And then he launched into... I know this is not exegetical proof. I get it. But I find it very interesting that in the New Testament, Jesus only raised three people from the dead. Only three. First was the young daughter, remember? 12-year-old girl. When he brought her back from the dead, what did he say? First thing he said about her, what did he say? Give her something to eat. She had an appetite. Who was the next one? Remember? Widow of Nain's son. Remember that one? Jesus stopped the funeral procession, walked up, raised this guy from the dead. He set up, what did he do? What do you do? First thing that happened, start talking. Go read it. Who was the third one? Lazarus. Yes, everybody. You got to get this one, <laughs> Lazarus. And when Jesus raised him from the dead, what did Jesus say? Turn him loose, unbind him, let him go. It's interesting to me that the three people Jesus raised from the dead: the first one had an appetite, the second one began to speak. And share, in the third one, found freedom from the bondage of sin and death. To me, those are really, really good evidences. I saw those at work in my own son's life. All of a sudden, I've been trying to force feed this guy, leading him to the trough, putting salt in the water and everything else. And all of a sudden, he, was, he had a spiritual appetite. All of a sudden, he wanted to talk about spiritual things. All of a sudden, he had a changed life. And the bondage and power of sin that had stalked him quietly and privately was broken. I want you to stand, your head bowed, your eyes closed, please, quiet as possible. please just bow. You're going to, you're, you'll be out of here in 30 seconds. Head bowed. Eyes closed. Not a soul talking, not a soul looking around. Nobody. Six weeks ago or longer, God spoke to me about this service on this day in this subject. I said, at Columbia? Yes, at Columbia. Have you been born again? I'm going to ask you the same question I ask you at the close of the service. If you're inquisitive, if your heart says to you, you know what? I've been a good kid all my life. I've been a part of the church all my life, but quite frankly, I've never really let Jesus come into my life and change me inwardly. Nobody's looking, just me. How many would quickly just raise your hand and say, that's me, I see that, I see that, I see that. Who else? I see those. I see it, I get it. I see it, I see it. Anybody else? I know it takes some courage, I get it. Anybody else? I'm willing to hang around, I don't care about lunch, I'm willing to hang around after chapel if you wanna stay, if you wanna talk, if you wanna pray. Again, I'll be back in the coffee shop again in the morning. But I wanna tell you something, you wanna see the kingdom of God, you wanna enter the kingdom of God, this is how it's done through the new birth. Father, may your Holy Spirit pursue every student here today. In Jesus' name, Amen.